a cult that I accidentally discovered by doing this show. A loser slash loner in Japan gives a bad name to all nerds. And then a bride and her bridesmaids. And a conspiracy to have the perfect wedding ever. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day too. I actually got my flu shot today, and they gave me some new antibiotics for my sinus infection, so I overslept. I came home, ate some lunch, took my medicine, and slept. I'm recording this a little bit later, but I think it's still going to come out around at the same time. So sorry about that, but I needed to get some rest. So the first thing I want to talk about. Let's talk about Forrest Finn's treasure, and more appropriately, the cult of Forrest Finn. Now, when I did the episode on Forrest Finn's treasure, it was a basic story that was the lead-in of the podcast. I have, I basically have it structured where I have a lead-in and then I have a main story. I spent, it was about an eight, ten minute long segment, I believe. This is the bulk of the story. He's a man who was a cancer survivor. He wanted to leave his legacy. He buried a treasure. Sorry, hid a treasure. I, I got called out because he didn't actually bury it. But anyways, so he hid a treasure. And people have been looking for it for the past eight years now. And I present that story. And then the last like minute, I'm like, I think it's a hoax. I don't think he really buried it. I think he just wanted people to read his memoir. And I think people's biggest fear is leaving the world with no legacy. And that was it. And then I was like, and the next story is a bunch of shadow people showed up in Sacramento and I, they were like running around my grandma's backyard. I'm, I, I don't know why people think this is a news broadcast. It obviously isn't. But I got some very, very stiff resistance to the Forrest Finn story. I, I got a lot of pushback on that one. Now, I'm a big boy. I can take criticism. Whatever. But the force and the amount of feedback I got on that one in a very, very short amount of time was startling. I, how dare I insult their leader? How dare I question the word of such an honorable man? Do I have proof that he didn't bury the treasure? If I don't have proof, then I can't say. How dare, dare I question the word of a man who honorably served our country? I am nothing I am a couch potato, I think they called me that. Is that even still a word? But anyways, it was startling. Now, I've gotten pushback on other videos before. Generally, I can expect it coming. Anti-cosmic Satanism, I got a little bit of pushback on. And that was expected, because I was like, I'm talking about someone's belief system. I'll probably get some pushback. And they did. They called me an idiot and said I should get punched in the head. And that was it. A couple comments over the course of six weeks. And that's when I realized something. This isn't a treasure hunt. This is a cult. The cult of Forrest Finn. They believe in him so much that the second anyone questions it, especially an outsider, they come out with knives ready. It was incredibly bizarre. I do want to say that I'm going to call this segment Get Rich or Die Lying because I think that's what's going on. I think that the Forrest Finn treasure is a hoax completely and... I can't believe none of them, they call themselves the fanatics. Ridiculous. The fanatics, the clues are in the book to where the treasure is. But actually, the biggest clue is the title of the book. The thrill of the chase. It's all about the search. There is no treasure. 
There is absolutely no treasure hidden. I got in trouble because I used the word buried. It's not buried. It's not buried, you you bad journalist fake news. It's hidden. So this is the story that they believe. Brief recap is an 80-year-old man took a heavy bronze chest, filled it full of artifacts that he says are in there, carried it somewhere, so it can't be too far away from a main road. But anyways, he hiked it away and didn't bury it, which I said multiple times in the original story. And they're like, he didn't bury it. He hid it. Okay, he hid it. And no one's found it for eight years. He left a little treasure map. He left this little clues to tell you where it's at, and no one can find it. And it's not buried, so it should be fairly visible behind a waterfall, behind a bush, something like that. People have wasted their time, their money. People have died. They've, they've wasted their life following this cult. It's a hoax. It's an absolute hoax, and it's in the title of the book, The Thrill of the Chase. He's selling you the adventure. Not the treasure. The thrill of the chase. Because that's what's important. He sold you the memoir. You're reading his story. He goes on these blogs and gives these interviews. And people are like, oh my god. They get chills up the back of their spine. That's putting it politely. This is a family podcast. They're probably doing other things when they hear from Forrest Finn. But the story doesn't wash. When people started to question whether or not that this treasure even existed in the first place. Forrest Finn miraculously came up with a photo that he had taken in 2010, but forgot about. It was on an old laptop. He goes, oh, I, I, I just found a laptop that happened to have a picture of the treasure. Here's seven years later, here's a photo of it. That's kind of weird that when people are questioning it in the media because people are dying, now all of a sudden you find an old photo of it. Now again, a skeptic, or a, no, not a skeptic, a normal person would see that and go, well, that's kind of odd. But the fanatics, like fanatic, but with Finn put into it, ridiculous. They believe that, oh, no, no, this is just more proof. They spend their time and their money, and people have died looking for this treasure. It is a cult. If you question it, you are immediately castigated for it. If you are an outsider, you're a non-believer. See, I had to prove that the treasure wasn't buried. It wasn't up to them to prove that it was, and that's, that's child logic, I don't have to prove that Santa Claus doesn't exist. You have to prove to me that he does. You're making the extraordinary claim that an 80-year-old man carried a heavy bronze box full of gold and jewels that he's accumulated over the years and hid it somewhere, not buried it, hid it, and it's never been found. You have to prove to me that that exists. But the cult is so ingrained in this group that any insult to their dear leader is taken as the insulter just is morally deficient. So I found a list of signs of a cult. And out of the 15 signs, this group has nine. The group displays excessively zealous and unquestioning commitment to its leader. Questioning doubt and dissent are discouraged or even punished. The group is elitist, claiming a special exalted status for itself. See, they're smarter than us. A lot of times on the websites, they'll be like, people who don't believe us just think that they, they're smarter than the clues. They should be able to find it. If they can't find it, then, then it doesn't exist. No, it doesn't exist because it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist because the story doesn't make sense. That's it. It, it doesn't make sense at all. If he had buried it, oh, sorry, hit it, and a week later somebody found it, or a year later, or five years later, maybe, but it's been eight years now. He's saying it may not be found for a thousand years. It's Yeah, it won't be found in a million years because it doesn't exist. The group has a polarized us-versus-them mentality. 
Yeah, that's true. Subservience to the leader or group requires members to cut ties with friends and families. Not so much, but, and radically alter the personal goals and activities they had before joining the group. Go to the Reddit thread for Forrest Finn. It's crazy. People plan their lives and they'll be like, oh, I was up so late looking at my newest solve. That's what they call it. Like, I was looking at my solve and people will post their like, hey, I think I know what this part of the clue is. And they oh, you're an idiot. You don't know who that is. It's this real insular group. And they, they'll talk about, man, I've wasted so much time. Sorry, not wasted. I've spent so much time. Well, I think it's waste, but I spent so much time working on this and blah, blah, blah. <sighs> so sad. The group is preoccupied with making money is another sign of a cult. I, I, and I think that's the interesting point is that Forrest Finn is a cult leader, but he's not selling you eternal salvation. He's not a religious cult leader in that sense. He's selling you salvation here. He is telling you that if you believe in him and follow his word, you can have millions of dollars. Like he's selling you salvation here. So that's that's the salvation he's selling. And you'll read when you go to these Reddit forums, people talk, they're in money woes. They're having money woes, but they get this puzzle and they think they can find this treasure and they end up spending money to travel out there and will walk around in the bushes for a week. And they find nothing because it doesn't exist. And this guy, this Forrest Finn guy, is totally getting off on this. His legacy is completely enshrined. A hundred. This is what I said on the original episode. A hundred years from now, people will still be looking for this. It doesn't exist. It, and, and the sad thing is, Forrest Finn's name will be remembered a hundred years from now, like his treasure. But the people who are spending their lives now looking for it, they'll be forgotten. Their legacy is gone. They're never going to find it. They're never going to stumble upon the box. I'm sure they daydream about finding it. And then everyone else on Reddit being jealous that they found it. And then them meeting Forrest Finn and they're nervous and they're shaking his hand for the first time. And then they're on the Ellen show and they tell their story about how they found it. It's never going to happen. It's total daydreams. The people who are spending their lives looking for this, they will have no legacy. Forrest Finn is almost sucking the life force out of them. (sighs) Colts are insane. So you have, I mean, secular cults can be just as damaging to people. And the thing is, is people, the thing about cults is people feel, the, the people who are in cults are people who are too smart to fall for cults. It's really bizarre. You fall, you, you think that I'm a smart person. I can never fall for such hokum. And then someone sells you something and it makes you double down because you've already spent your time and your money and you believe in him so much. You can't question it, because if you question it, you're questioning the last eight years of your life. If you say, you know what, I don't think it existed. Basically, that is a, that is a complete insult to your, your soul. You've, you've put so much into this hoax that when someone puts something forward, it actually is insulting to you as an individual because you've bought into this lie. Do I think this is going to change anyone's mind? I would hope so. The reason why I'm doing this segment is because to the people who aren't in a cult, I think it's important to see that these things can pop up anywhere. Absolutely anywhere. I just thought it was interesting because, again, I didn't... Th- I, I, it was a... It was I, it, I, it was a starter story. It was a story I was like, oh, this will be a fun thing to talk about. And it exposed something dark and raw in a lot of people. He, it doesn't exist, guys. It flat out doesn't exist. And the sooner that you recognize it doesn't exist, 
and move on and build your legacy, the happier you'll be. That being said, there is a television series starting about this treasure, so I think they'll just be more fanatics in the coming years. The next story we're going to talk about is fairly dark, so we'll try to keep it light as much as we can. So this is a story of... This takes place in Japan. So we're hopping in the Carpenter Copter. We're leaving Forrest Finn's Colt Compound. And they're like shooting at us as we're flying away. We're like, get down! They're throwing fake gold at us as we're flying away from their compound. We're taking a trip to Japan. I've never been to Japan. I've only seen what it looks like on television. It looks pretty dope. My little brother's been there, though. He said the arcades are awesome. But anyway, so... So the Carpenter Copter... We land in Japan. We have to, like... Wipe the gold dust off of the rotors. Because they did get us a couple times with their nuggets. And we're going to talk about Sutomu Sutomu Miyazaki. So Sutomu Miyazaki was this young dude. Well, obviously. I mean, everyone. But I guess, I guess not women. But anyway, so he was this young guy. And when he was born, his hands were kind of fused into his wrist. So he had this physical deformity. And people made fun of him because he's growing up and his hands look all gimpy and stuff. And so you kids are cruel and they're making fun of him. And so he had a really hard time connecting with people. He lost his, he lost himself into otaku culture. Now, otaku basically is like low. It's funny because in America, otaku kind of has a different connotation. It's kind of like a, a nerd, like you have a magazine called otaku. But it's probably closer to the British term neat. It's probably closer because neat means not neat means not employed in education or training. So so basically it's a loafer. It's basically a loafer. Neat. Otaku in Japan, it's the same thing. It's not like, oh, look at me, I'm a kawaii nerd. It's like you're a loser. You spend all your time reading comic books and watching cartoons, and that's you can do that stuff, but you also have to be a productive member of society. Over here, it's a little more, it has a better meaning, but over there, it's like you're a total, you're, you're, you're a loser. So, uh, Sutomu, so we'll just call Miyazaki, I can say that easier. So, Miyazaki was reading comic books, manga, sorry, and then he was, had a bunch of anime, and he was watching horror movies. He was really into horror movies, particularly the Guinea Pig series, which is a, the Guinea Pig series is a gore centered horror it's basically just people being chopped up supposedly looks really really realistic so he was into that he was into horror movies he was reading manga that was pretty much all he did his father was fairly successful in the town and wanted him to take over the business and Miyazaki was like no I don't want to do that so they were people were giving him opportunities to move forward with his life his grandfather he was closest to his grandfather and his grandfather died, and he. this is the, really the start of when all this breaks down. And this story takes place in the 80s. His grandfather dies, and it was the only person that he ever felt really close to. And so Miyazaki, when no one was looking, ate some of his ashes. Yeah, we're going there. And then he started to have other behavioral problems. At one point, he was caught spying on his sister, taking a shower. And when she confronted him, he attacked her. And then the mom came and started yelling at him and he attacked her too. So the guy's obviously a little mentally unbalanced. Least of all, attacking the women, taking the showers and all that stuff. Most of all, eating the ashes. What happens is between August 1988 and June 1989, this kid, this physically deformed kid who had it rough growing up, 
and was in a society where work was highly valued and he just wanted to sit around and read comic books and watch horror movies, something sparks in him and he decides to go, okay, I can either get a job, sit around and read comic books and just keep doing what I'm doing or start murdering people. So over the course of a year, he murders four little girls between the ages of four and seven and commits acts like necrophilia and cannibalism and trophies. He takes their feet home. He starts sending letters to the family of the girls. One of them said, Mari, cremated bones, investigate, prove. So the guy's a real dick. And eventually, he is caught trying to pick up his fifth victim. The dad finds him doing stuff with this girl and basically chases him down and then calls the cops. He gets arrested. He's completely emotionless. Surprise, surprise, in trial. His father kills himself out of shame of the whole affair. And he's eventually hung by the government. And there was a bit of a controversy because when they were taking photos of his apartment for evidence, they had rows and rows and rows of these manga. And some of it was mainstream, but some of it was more controversial stuff. And then his horror movies. And people said that the government was trying to make otaku culture look bad. And that stuff was inserted by the crime scene people, which is an insane conspiracy theory. I don't think they have like buckets of, they're like, hey, dude, go gut those lum comic books. We're going to stick them in this guy's shelves. They'll make him look like a lunatic. No, he had it. And he was dubbed the otaku killer or the little girl killer was another nickname of his. That's, a, that's an overview. I don't like to dwell, especially in crimes against children. I don't want to be like, oh, and then he crept into the back seat and with a leering look in his eye. I don't, that's not this kind of podcast. Like, again, there are certain stories where I think that stuff is important, but I don't think it's important to this story. I'll talk about that when I'm talking about like Big Bigfoot getting shot by Patterson Gimlin. But again, I don't think that's important to this particular story. I think what's important to this story is two things. One, it is very easy to go from being an outsider to slipping out of reality. It's very, very easy. I almost feel like our brain tricks us into that. What happens is you start off by removing yourself little by little from human interactions with people for good or bad reasons. There may be reasons why you're like, you know what, I don't want to hang out in my house anymore. My parents are abusive. My sister is doing this, whatever. So it's not always a bad thing to to kind of step out. But what happens is, People will start to step out too far. And then let's say that you're having trouble at your home life and then you start hanging out with homeless kids, which I've had a lot of interactions with. And that was their new family. So even though they had stepped out of the bounds of quote unquote normal society, they now had a new family with new rules and new senses of loyalty and new things to do and to follow and to entertain them. But the thing is, is that you will sometimes also move out of that social bubble and you keep moving so you're basically you encasp you encapsulate yourself in you are your own social network and it's when that loneliness takes over is when you start to feel like you can do anything that's when reality truly breaks for you because you have no social ties whatsoever you don't want to have social ties with mainstream society that's fine you can find social ties in other places we're a social species And we should be bound to each other in one way or the other. I think the internet is a double-edged sword. I think it can make people find social groups they didn't know that were out there. And that's really good. And I think it can isolate people even more. 
because they go on the internet and they see all these people who they presume are having better lives than them and it makes them feel like even more of an outsider. I think the internet is great for building social networks and I think that's a great tool for it. And here's a fun fact about me. I'm actually more shy online than I am in real life. In real life, I will walk up to a total stranger and start a conversation all the time. Online, I lurk all, I very rarely interact with people online. I'm actually more shy online than I am in real life. And I think it's because when I'm talking to someone in real life, I can look at them and I can read them and I can tell how engaged they are in the conversation and whether or not this, whether or not they want to keep talking to me or whether or not they're lying to me or whatever thing. I'm really good at reading body language online. That's all gone. I can't, I'm very, very shy online. But I think for most people, it's the reverse. So a key component, especially for you or if you're seeing people stepping out of the, like cutting those social bonds to an extreme degree, that's where we have trouble like this. This guy, and people tried helping him. And he kept pulling himself further and further away from that social group that is important to us as apes, as social animals. So I would hope that if you find yourself doing that, there is a social group out there for you. Hopefully your social group isn't budding serial killers. That would be an actual probably bad social group. But if you find yourself cutting the ties to society, your best bet is to go. Instead of saying, you know, I don't like my home life or I don't like the church or I don't like politics or this political party or whatever. Instead of saying, I'm going to throw it all away, say, I'm going to find another group that I think I'll fit better with. That's That's really your best bet. And if you can't, then try to find a group online. You know, my second thing that I want to talk about, and I, I'm going to have to dedicate a whole segment to this of why I just don't like serial killers to begin with, but I'm going to address it very shortly here. I don't like serial killers because they attack the weakest of the weak. They are not hunters of men. They are not the dark side of humanity. They're limp-dicked punks who kill women, who kill elderly people, and who kill children. They're not killing UFC fighters or Marines. They're not chasing down, you know, bodybuilders and boxing them. No. Ted Bundy is tricking young, naive, good-hearted women to come to a cabin with him. Ooh, oh my god. Call up a movie producer. We have to make a movie about that. That is a that is the darkest side of humanity. No, you you can't get it up. Limp Dick wasn't just a turn of phrase. You literally can't get a heart on unless you're killing somebody. And they're always somebody weaker than you who reminded you of your mom or your ex-girlfriend. Yeah, I'm really impressed by you guys. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. Now I'm probably getting an email from a serial killer, but they'll say, well, I kill Marines. And I, okay, I'm sure, I'm sure there is one serial killer out there who has killed a bunch of Marines, but I would, I would be shocked. And then I was talking about this with Veronica and she said, well, what about Jeffrey Dahmer? He killed men. And I go, yeah, he killed very skinny men. He he killed young men. One of his victims was 16 years old. So it's and he and he had to drug them. He brought them over to their house because they wanted to have sex, and then he drugged them, and they fell asleep, and he chopped them up or drilled a hole in their brain, actually. But so again, he's not go. You're not going toe to toe with these guys. That's why I said, and I go, I'll, I'll give you know, like you have hitmen and you have gangbangers and you have stuff like that, and they may be in essence a serial killer because they're killing multiple people. But a hitman's not like, hey, I only have one rule. I only kill women and children. You're like, no. They're like, my rule is, I'm going to take down that target. 
You have the gangbanger and being like, that guy owes us money and he's not paying up? Okay. He may go, I'll go kill his wife and stuff like that, but that's not his... That's not their modus operandi. They'll be... One day they may be out, like, shooting some chick who witnessed a crime, and the next day they're having a running gun battle with a rival gang. So that the mentality is different. I'm not saying all killers are like that, but the idea of the serial killer itself. It's, they're all Victims are always women. The victims are always kids. The victims are always elderly people. And then the times that you do have male victims, it tends to be like Herb Baumeister. He would bring guys over to his house to have sex with, and he'd be like, hey, let's play this game where I put this rope around your neck and you pass out, and it's really hot. And then people would be like, uh, yeah, sure. So he's not like fighting them. There's no struggle. He just tricks them. Same thing with that idiot clown guy, John Wayne Gacy. And he was killing boys. So again, you know, there's no UFC slaughterer. There's no New York police detective, you know, strangler. Because the the serial killers get their ass stomped in every single fight with someone who could put up a reasonable fight. A 90-pound woman that Ted Bundy is tricking into his car is not a threat to Ted Bundy. King Kong Bundy is a threat to Ted Bundy. And that's why they pick the victims they do. And that's why I have, I would say, non-existent respect for a serial killer. I think they're lame. So that was my rant for the day. I'm going to do this last story really quick because I want to end on a light note again. And I have to admit, after the last two stories, I need a light note. The story I read about it, it was oddly sexual to me. I found it very intriguing. And it's quite simple, but um, very, very hot. Maybe I was just in a weird mood. Now, nah, I, I do think it's hot. This is from an article entitled, I secretly fattened up my bridesmaids before my wedding. Ah, huh? a conspiracy. I'll fit it in there some way if I, if I have to. This woman, she's getting married. And she has these beautiful sisters. And she is going to get married. And her sisters are going to be her bridesmaids. But she started to think. She goes, my sisters have always been, you know, we've always been really competitive. My sisters are very, very pretty. I want to have the perfect wedding. And I want to have the perfect wedding photos. So what she started doing was first off, so they're all three girls. It's her. She's the middle child. They're all blonde. They all have fair skin. And she picked for bridesmaids dresses uh, neon yellow. So it made them look super washed out and gross and like ill. It made them look their skin have a weird sheen to it. And then she started making breathfix. I can't say the word. Damn it. She started making I didn't know this word was in the article. She started making them bre- bre- breakfast uh, smoothies. And she bought a container of weight loss shake and emptied it out. And then added in a mega weight gain protein powder into it. And she was making them. And she's like, oh, these smoothies are just a good way to start the day. And we're going to do this. And so her sisters started getting chubby. And they couldn't figure it out. And she, her one, her smoothie was just fruit and coconut water. So the end result was the two sisters had to have their dresses altered. They put on so much, so they didn't, they didn't get like big mama's house fat, but they put on enough weight. Their dresses had to be altered. And she's like, I had a great time. The photos came out great. And both my sisters lost the weight relatively quickly because they caught, caught, stopped drinking the smoothies. Once the wedding was over and, but they've been like, oh man, those smoothies were so good. What's your recipe? Like since then. And so this, I thought it was a fun story. It technically is a conspiracy where she, and and that is the the definition of a conspiracy. She has this secret plan to enact against other people. 
And it's, I read the article and I'm like, this is, this is vaguely, I find this vaguely erotic. And I don't know if it's erotic because I like diabolical women. Not like diabolical women, like I'm going to murder you for your drug money, but just kind of like uh, slightly manipulative. Slightly kind of like, <laughs> I pulled one over on him. Like that. I don't, to a slight degree, I don't want to attract a bunch of psychos into my life. I don't know if that's the attractive part or the idea of these thin women slowly getting plump. I don't, I, and their dresses getting tighter. I don't know. I don't have like a weight gain fetish. But this whole article, I was like, hmm, this, maybe I'll, uh, you know, this is vaguely, uh, this is quite erotic. So I wanted to include it in the show. So I had an excuse to read it again. <laughs> and technically, technically it is a conspiracy. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Please don't send me inflation porn. Please. I don't, I've seen it. That's Again, that's not my thing. I just, I like tight dresses. I like dresses that are too tight. Actually, I have a thing for that, but. Where was I going? Uh, Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. That was a good episode. You should do. You should send me stuff and then join my cult. It's called Dead Rabbit Radio Cult. And I have a treasure that is hidden. And it is... um, I will write a poem and it will tell you where the treasure is at, but... You'll just have to believe me that there is really a treasure because I am an honorable person. So you will have to take my word for it. Thank you for listening. And insert hypnotic noises here that I cannot make because I am not a hypnotist. Have a great day.